Good day, nerds. This is Megan McCarthy Beyond coming at you. We've got another Cantina conversation today. We're talking to Lucy Ward, her book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus, comes out on June 7th. And this was actually um, a pretty fascinating read. I really enjoyed learning about, you know, kind of the lesser known, but very significant um, events in history. So this book was really fascinating. A lot of research went into it and it's really cool to dive in a little deeper and talk to Lucy about um, the kind of research that like her, what her process was, what the most fascinating things she learned and just what significant thing this was for them to do at the time. So without further ado, here is Lucy Ward. Okay, we've got Lucy Ward here, author of The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus, out June 7th, correct? That's still That's right. Okay, okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Lucy, for joining us. You know, this this book was I'll I'll pre- I'll I'll begin by saying that I love reading a book that makes me feel smarter when I'm done. <laughs> so <laughs> I really appreciated this read and um it was told really well and organized very well. And um I'm excited. You know, thank you for taking the time. You're across the pond here, um, the other side of the world. So I'm glad we could meet together and um, you know, just dive a little bit deeper into this. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really kind of you. And it's lovely of you to say that it's organized well, because I wrote this book in lockdown and it was just like me and the laptop for an awfully long time and and my family shouting in another room. So it's nice (laughs) to feel that there was some logic to this book. Right, right, right. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, start off with like, maybe want to give like a brief synopsis of the book so that listeners can kind of follow along with the conversation. So this book is the story of uh, an English doctor named Thomas Dimsdale, who made a journey to St. Petersburg in 1768 to inoculate Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia, against smallpox. Uh, He was a kind of expert inoculator in England. He'd written a treatise um, about inoculation uh, that uh, was had kind of traveled across Europe, eventually it even came to America. Um, So he was well known as a kind of expert and she wanted the top expert she could possibly find to inoculate her own son, who was uh, about to be 14, and herself to protect them from smallpox. Smallpox was a devastating disease at the time, killed around 400,000 people a year in Europe alone. uh, And uh, about one in five people who got it died and others were disfigured, injured. Um, She wanted to protect their lives. Obviously, it was her son and herself, but also to Uh, protect them Uh, this was uh, her connection to the throne was through her son yeah so this story follows Thomas Dimsdale's journey to St Petersburg explores his time there where he conducted some trials that went quite badly wrong the whole thing was surprisingly thrilling and there are many different kind of perspectives on it written by different people including Thomas himself and Catherine Uh, and then it's the story of how he inoculated her and what happened next it's it's super fascinating it's just kind of like opens your eyes to how the whole pandemic that we're dealing with now it's like it's nothing new it just hasn't happened in a long time and it's it's crazy to see like the parallels that you described in your book like to today and you know kind of how you mentioned before that you were i I just imagine so much research went into this so can you um like kind of go into that like what I want to you know hear about the research and and what your process was and and also like a part two of the question like what was like the most fascinating or interesting or surprising uh things that you that you found out while you were researching sure I 
I actually came across the story here. I mean, we all know about Catherine the Great and uh, that I I'd kind of studied even in school. Although kind of one of the things that I felt, one of the reasons almost I wanted to write this book is I feel that so much of the history about her is mistold. There are simply lies that I'm not mm. even going to reiterate about her sex life and about her kind of character. Um, and I, you know, I'm not here to idealize her, but I feel like if there's a story we don't know about her that's incredibly revealing, then that should kind of, uh, you know, replace the stories that are actual outright lies based on kind of 250 years of misogyny and prejudice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it would kind of be good, you know. Um, so anyway, I came across the story from another woman, from another mother uh, in a school playground who I met after I'd been living in Russia for two years. And I came back from Russia and uh, my kids went to a new school. I met a mother on the first day. And she said, oh, my family has a Russian connection. And I thought she'd say she was Russian. She said uh, that, in fact, her great, 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 whatever grandfather had inoculated Catherine the Great against smallpox. And that's such a bizarre thing to hear in a playground. Yeah. I just made her tell me the story. <laughs> I went home. This was 10 years ago. And I researched it. And I just found this story incredibly compelling. Um, and it kind of started to involve all kinds of interesting people. Catherine herself, obviously, the doctors in the 18th century who were just so little known and were making such astonishing progress. And uh, Voltaire, George III, Dr. Johnson, it was fascinating. So I I kind of pursued it. And then I actually ended up pitching the story finally before the pandemic, before the COVID pandemic, just before it. And I was saying to my agent, well, you know, there's still a real, there's a real story going on with anti-vaccination sentiment. This is really fascinating and why people feel so strongly and some people really don't want to come to terms with this technology. And look, I've looked back at this story and this was going on in the 18th century in a kind of remarkably similar way. And very fortunately for me, she kind of did agree to accept this story. And then of course, you know, events changed around us. And I began writing this story. I literally got the contract for it as the UK went into lockdown. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> so so that had a fairly big impact on my research. It would have been lovely to, you know, kind of go around archives and explore libraries and mm. go back to Russia. And But, you know, that was the end of that. So there was an awful <laughs> lot of digitized archive work. But what I did have, was were the papers of this doctor, Thomas Dimsdale, his family still have letters between him and Catherine. They have amazing things like the health questionnaire that he gave her when he went to Russia and he asked her, you know, that I don't know whether you have the same thing in the States, but the doctor here would say to you, so how many units of alcohol do you drink a week? <laughs> you, you, everybody like halves it, you know, or, yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what's your diet like? How much do you weigh? And, and she, she answered all that, you know, it's incredible. And so I had these notes and then also his medical notes about her. Bits of those have been made public before academics have had access to them. But, you know, to actually read this man's handwriting with all its ink blots and things as he's noting down her recovery from smallpox, everything from, you know, the purges, like how many stools, you know, I know everything about this woman's right. body, her, her, her periods, you know, this is yeah. kind of really remarkable. Um, and uh, so I was incredibly fortunate to have that that whole collection of papers when I was writing this. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I kind of wrote this against the background of COVID. And so there were some huge resonances. Um, so one of them was just that sheer sense of, you know, how a community reacts to, to fear and mm-hmm. risk. Small, smallpox is dramatically more dangerous than COVID, not to underestimate COVID, but sure. as I mentioned, one in five sufferers died uh, or sometimes more. Um, and, and the 18th century, the virus was at its most virulent. It was really, really, uh, you know, dangerous and widely feared. And it also had this kind of visible presence in people's lives because you yeah. could see the scars, you could yeah. see the blindness it caused. It was 
different you know it was very present and so but you know just as we had lockdown here in the UK um, you know it, during smallpox if, a, if it's an epidemic wave of smallpox came to an English town then the market would shut the schools would close people would be very cautious about going out you know it had this kind of huge impact on daily life and of course also you know people were dealing with grief and sorrow and fear and you know you could in people's writings about it you could feel those feel those emotions kind of across the centuries so that was remarkable but of course the other aspect that really resonated was pandemic leadership if you like mm. um you know because we all know that like different leaders approach this very differently and mm-hmm. we all remarked on that and kind of compared it in different countries so I was obviously looking at that in the context of the 18th century as well and different leaders had well most leaders did very little really but Catherine chose this is where Catherine the Great is so interesting that rather than kind of just put up with smallpox as, as everyone else did and kind of ride it as the you know there was very little to be done she decided that she would embrace this technology that she'd heard about from England uh, and use herself as an example so key thing protect herself and her son personally but then you know as a as a leader she had that ability to kind of be she was an opportunist I guess like all good leaders are you know you see the potential for how can I use this so having been inoculated and recovered she then uh, tried to promote this technology across Russia using her own example she very consciously said look I did this I took this risk I survived and you can too and she was Catherine the Great was German she wasn't Russian Mm -hmm. although she'd you know she'd become um, received into the Orthodox Church she was she spoke Russian she was obviously had married a Russian husband who she had then removed in a coup and then he died six days later yeah Yeah. so that's kind of okay that was but anyway this that had happened in 1762 and this inoculation is six years later in 1768 by which time she's a lot more stable on the throne Mm -hmm. she started a lot of domestic reforms and this was kind of part of a reform program in a way she was already trying to improve public health partly because so many children died and she Mm. you know the strength of the nation within its population so one massive way she could save lives for the state if you like for the economy was try and deal with this killer disease that was wiping out so many people in Russia so yeah be her own example and 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 she was an influencer really this the moment she'd recovered and her son had recovered she went into full promotional mode right uh she did everything from like um she had kind of the my favorite thing is she had a ballet commissioned all about smallpox yeah. <laughs> I was like who does that and it's called pre- prejudice defeated and it kind of featured her as it was an allegory obviously it wasn't mm-hmm. literally about smallpox but it was all about um her as Minerva this goddess of wisdom kind of fighting back and conquering prejudice and because Russians were really really superstitious mm. about smallpox they they believed that if you uh if you gave the kind of infected matter from your the spots the pustules to protect another person then you would you would die as the donor um and that was uh you know really deeply embedded and she wanted to kind of reassure right. people that this was safe and that it worked so yeah that that feeling of of just pandemic leadership also a kind of pandemic like nationalism because you also got the situation where um countries start kind of or people in countries who support inoculation use the argument that other countries are 
inoculating and saving lives, as I say, for the state, whereas their own country is not. So they're kind of, they're arguing for this public health measure as a means of kind of boosting the population, which will boost the strength of the nation. So Voltaire um, talked about that and other, other French supporters of inoculation, because the French state was not keen at all. The French, the church didn't like it, the medical profession mm. didn't like it. So the supporters of this in France were the philosophes, the people like Voltaire, um, Diderot, um, these kind of intellectuals were, they kind of regarded inoculation as this rational thing to do that, mm. you know, if you are a rational parent, you would have your child inoculated. So, yeah, I, sh I should probably explain the difference between inoculation and vaccination. Would that be helpful? Yeah, probably. Really <laughs> I'm sorry. And there I am. Now. Oh, no, it's fine. I get, you know, I because I read the whole book. So I'm like, I, yeah. I following along, no problem. But that, that's, yeah, yeah. that's fine. But I'm aware it's I do accept. So this is the science bit. So it is really confusing. I know, but it, it needn't be. So vaccination this is everything I'm talking about happened in the 18th century before vaccination was mm. kind of, if you like, discovered by uh, a man called, or proven to work by uh, an English doctor called Edward Jenner. So inoculation is the use of kind of infected matter. So kind of live virus from somebody with smallpox. You basically, there's no nice way of saying this. You take the pus from one of their pustules and then you uh, you kind of insert that into a little tiny puncture in the arm, usually of someone else, a healthy patient. So it was a way to give somebody a mild dose of a really dangerous disease. Um, and then they would kind of recover, probably taking about three weeks and then uh, and then they would be immune for life. Um, and this was not discovered in Europe, but very much not. It was in use in Asia and certainly in China and in Africa, and then came to Europe from uh, Turkey, from reports that came to the Royal Society in England, um, but also through first-hand experience for an incredible woman called Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was, she was wife to the British ambassador in Turkey. Uh, she went to Turkey in about 1717. She'd had smallpox herself and really suffered. Her brother had died of it. She gets to Turkey and she sees there are these smallpox parties where these kind of elderly women are inoculating kids using pus carried around in a walnut shell. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> she finds that this, uh, this is wrong. She's absolutely amazed. And she writes home saying, I'm going to bring this technology to England. It's incredible. She has her own son inoculated, comes back to Britain, has her daughter inoculated with kind of English doctors witnessing it. And then she goes around taking her daughter around the drawing rooms of London, telling all these elite aristocrats, really, look, this works. This system really works. And they follow suit because fashion is a massive driver of, mm. you know, of, of this uh extension of this technology people follow her but it doesn't spread beyond that kind of elite group really for a long time but yeah so it came from really to Europe from Turkey but Britain really took it up and it was also in use in in the United States as well or in, in America then and again as I'm sure you know that it, it, there was a man called Cotton Mather who heard about it from the Royal Society in Britain from their publication but also from his enslaved servant he he who had been inoculated in Africa and told mm -hmm. him about it mm -hmm. yeah yeah and like so it, it, I know it's <laughs> it's kind of like it's a little nasty but it's like it, it's what else <laughs> yeah. were they gonna do you know it's that's 
they didn't have a lot of like the tools that are available today and that's totally and they didn't have a cure you know like no one could cure smallpox so they just were curing it in the way that like classical medicine from literally centuries previously had told them that you deal with fevers so they would keep the patient really hot absolute Mm -hmm. worst thing you can do like wrap them up sometimes they wrap them up in red cloth because there was some kind of superstition the color red would address it Mm -hmm. uh they would purge them not very pleasant or make them vomit sometimes bleeding you know anything they they believed uh at the beginning of the 18th century people still believed that smallpox was like they called it an inherent seed it was inside you because almost everyone got it so they just right. assumed it must be something in you that eventually came out and hence right. the red spots and pustules um and then over the century though they, they through inoculation really they began to realize this was not something inside people it was something that you caught from another sufferer so by mm. the end of the century there's a remarkable understanding of contagion actually and then just just to finish on the difference with vaccination so eventually so the, the big danger with smallpox inoculation was that when you'd inoculated a patient they had this mild illness, but they were fairly mild, wasn't pleasant. Um, but there was a period where they were infectious. So you could, you know, I could inoculate you and that would be great. You'd recover. But potentially you could give smallpox to someone else. And right. They could die, which is a bad, <laughs> really bad outcome. And so you had to isolate people while they were recovering. Right. So great. But didn't always work. Sometimes people just went out to work or, you know, yeah. had contact with people. So it had a real risk there. Mm-hmm. So later in the century, people began to recognize that a much milder disease called cowpox that people could catch from cows, obviously, um, that that actually had the same effect in protecting you against smallpox. So in that case, you're using a mild disease to protect against a much, you know, a really dangerous one. And Edward Jenner proved that that worked. He's really famous. I don't know if he's in the States, but he's in Britain. <laughs> as the, 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 the man that kind of proved this technology, look, you could now use a really, you know, a, a disease that was pretty much like flu give somebody that and it would give them immunity against smallpox much better and it's called vaccination after the latin for cow um because yeah but it was using cowpox to fight smallpox so eventually inoculation gets pushed out and that's why we've all forgotten about it because vaccinations got in the way and taken all the the credit right (laughs) but it's like vaccination is like a modification of of this technology that was already there so i'm kind of standing up for the tech that was improved like, no, let's, let's not forget like how yeah. we got here <laughs> is that exactly that yeah that's exactly yeah. Sums it up. um yeah no all of it it was just like so fascinating and like just reading you know because there were other significant people a part of this process too like i the suttons uh what yeah. they did with like basically creating like a business model out of it yeah you know totally. trying to make just like you know they had a found a way to make money off of yeah. inoculating people in in you uh, know masses and so uh, i thought i think that was like probably one of my favorite parts to like to learn about was just like but of course of course there'd be somebody or some family looking to increase that efficiency and make some money off of it and yeah yeah, I'm so glad you've mentioned that because almost nobody ever does. And I you because that guy nearly took over the book. I was fascinated by him. I had to keep yeah. squashing him down, you know, like, yeah. no, you can't, you can't have any more space. It's not your story. Um, so the Suttons were a family from a county in England called Suffolk. And they, they're kind of family of doctors, not kind of trained. There wasn't really a formal training model at all in England. It was a pretty kind of entrepreneurial, you know, everyone for themselves medicine. So although Thomas Dimsdale had trained in a hospital, there were ways to train, but you could absolutely set up as a doctor without anyone stopping you really without that formal (laughs) training, let's be honest. So the Suttons were practicing and the 
between them, they kind of managed to work out that, well, let's just take a step back. I talked about inoculation coming from Turkey and the, the Turkish method that the elderly ladies in Turkey were using was super simple. It was just, you need a was called a blunt needle and a bit of the smallpox pus and you just dab a bit of the pus into a tiny hole in the arm done okay and no preparation no messing around no purging no bleeding no mm. special diet comes to britain and and it does get accepted which is great well done britain however <laughs> we we completely mess it up by kind of making it much more elaborate and and intricate and adding all these kind of extra steps from sort of humoral medicine. So preparing the patient, lots of dietary preparation, as I say, purging and so on. But also doctors started, instead of just the tiny, tiny puncture in the arm, they start making big incisions, deep incisions, and then inserting like bits of um, cotton, uh, which are, have been soaked in person, then bandaging the arm. So of course mm. people get infections. So even though early inoculation is much safer than actually having natural smallpox, and in, uh, there's an early analysis of it by the Royal Society and about one person in 50 died. So much better odds than the one in five died from smallpox. Yeah. However, you know, doctors really had made it less safe than it was in the original basic Turkish method. And what the Sutton family do is they work out that you can go back to that stripped down, simplified Turkish method where there's no keeping the patient warm. There's no massive incisions. It's just a quick puncture. And then you kind of just keep the patient outside walking in cool air, give them cool drinks and they'll recover really quickly. So they come up with this quick method. It becomes cheaper. It's much more attractive. People don't get ill. They, re they recover faster. So they don't need to take much time off work. And the Suttons are absolute entrepreneurs. They're like these kind of biotech specialists and especially the, the, the main guy, Daniel Sutton, the son of the original medical father. Um, and he really does set up the most incredible business and he's earning more than the prime minister. Um, <laughs> he's come out of nowhere, you know, and he's advertising in all the newspapers. He makes every he makes inoculation with him sounds like sound like a kind of yoga break. He kind of yeah. he talks about yeah you can stroll in the garden and we'll provide you with tea and wine. And he hires a PR man, a, a vicar who kind of keeps putting out these pamphlets going on about how great he is. Um, <laughs> he, he, he even has a special coat of arms designed. Uh, he has oh yeah he has a, a three word slogan which is kind of very now you know it's and it's safely quickly pleasantly to describe <laughs> how he inoculates he's just fantastic but he will not give away his method at all he just is like no this is all about my business and he's making all this money he's kind of franchising he spends a lot of time advertising in the newspapers telling everybody that other inoculators don't really understand his method so he's he's kind of doing that and Thomas Dimsdale my doctor with other doctors realizes what he's doing test it on their own patients and thomas dimsdale is the one who actually writes this down writes mm -hmm. the treatise explains the what he calls the present method but it's really going back to the old method of turkey the very simple steps he explains it in a treaty so he's like the kind of open source scientist he shares and that is why when catherine the great comes to choose a doctor from england to inoculate her she chooses thomas dimsdale mm -hmm. he's He's published. He's he's and he's got kind of profile. He's not secretive. He's not greedy. And I mean, Thomas himself does like money. He worries about money, but he's not. Right. He's not kind of grasping. Uh, and he and he's he's interesting. He's a Quaker. He comes from a Quaker family. Although he does get kicked out of the Quakers for marrying <laughs> out, but he still absolutely has Quaker principles and of kind of honesty. He's very straightforward. Um, I think also a desire to for the sort of social good and to change the world if you like you know mm. he's when he came back from russia he spent a lot of time campaigning to try and bring inoculation to the poor 
Um, and I think Catherine, I mean, he, he was even um, introduced to the Russian ambassador in London through a Quaker connection. So the Quaker, his Quaker identity really helped him kind of get the gig, if you like. Mm, right, yeah. right. No, and I, that's yeah. one thing I love that you pointed out was that, you know, there were like the whole scientific and medical community were were freaking out. They were panicked. You know, they were trying to figure this out. They were trying to solve it. Yeah. They were trying to cure it. They were doing what they could with what they had. And I love your term. It was like he was open source. And so yeah. he was like, everybody should know this. This is what I've done. I've I've got the numbers. Like, you know, he's like, he's done the research. What would be modern day spreadsheets? He like, yeah. He recorded Excel everything man, yeah. and he's like, yeah. here, I, well, this is what I've got. And this is what you should do this, you know, because I guess like in a way he knew because, you know, they knew about people practicing it without much training. And I guess maybe he saw it as like, well, I'm this is what I did this is what you should do if you're going to do it like do it this way like it, like just to kind of help speed up that process of mass inoculation and I just thought you know and and it had to be someone with his personality to be able to do that like somebody who wasn't greedy somebody who wasn't like always worried about the profit somebody who was you know he he was really like that that sense of like you know doing good and helping you know with and what I thought was fascinating too I'm gonna go all over the place because everything was like so many fascinating <laughs> things in this book do it <laughs> what I thought was crazy it was like essentially like one of the he like jumps they like jumps this whole effort like jump started like a public health program and just across like different countries you you're talking about one guy's from you this guy's from UK and then as Catherine's in Russia and then like she's the prominent figure like she's the empress and so it's like I just thought it was so fascinating how you know I had to reach the top and it was crazy how it, it makes it more that much more significant that they're like in different countries and you know in Europe that are are somehow they read the word is reaching and mm-hmm. they're they're making it happen and poor you know Dimsdale and his and his son you know, had to make that trip, what, twice, right? Yeah, and it was just like, you know, and it was like a thousand something miles. And I thought like, you know, and he said like, what, he'd never been to Russia prior to that, <laughs> right? And so, <laughs> never you know, and this is before the internet, before social media, before like, you only hear about things or you only, you can't really grasp, you know, different regions, how they look, the cultures of different people back then. And so it's just kind of like all these little components, like playing into like the big picture that was this, huge like effort and I love the fact that they became like you know they developed a a great relationship out of it because she she trusted him wholeheartedly and then also kind of you know I can't like when you mentioned Catherine as like a lot of the stuff you might read about her is a little damaging but it's because she was like so unapologetic about yeah her her person her her but she was such an interesting person because she was she was intelligent she was curious she yeah. was like no nonsense and she was unapologetic about her sexuality. Like she was like, wasn't trying to hide it really. She was just like, you know, doing what, I, you know, handling her business, doing what she wanted. And also she was just like, she, she was almost like five steps ahead of everybody. And, yeah. you know, with the political savviness and, you know, um, you know, her relationships with, within the military branch of, of, you know, her, her party and whatever. And so, you know, for lack of better words, I was just like, like, well, she's a boss ass bitch. Like she yeah, had to do it. <laughs> and, and it, like, she was also so important. Like it had, like almost had to be her type of personality too, to really make this yeah. bold choice. It's like, where would, where would Europe be? Where would smallpox be? Had it not been for these important players? And I love, like, going back to the sentence, I love how like um, Dimsdale, he, 
he was almost reluctant about it writing about them <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah he, I got the sense of like yeah. when you described it in the book I you know I just thought it was really funny like you know he didn't he had he, he couldn't help but mention them he did mention them he did give them yeah. the credit, credit that was due even though yeah. they I, yeah they I think that he was that's it's probably one of the the less he's a really attractive man in a lot of ways but that's one of his slightly less attractive he did he did credit the sons but it took him quite a while it was like the third um treaties or something before he actually names them <laughs> and he kind of makes this point that you know even un, sort of ill-educated people can still kind of you know reach the right conclusions and it's all a little bit patronizing really and mm-hmm. you, you know he, he hadn't he 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 had trained, he was a trained surgeon, but he right. bought his, his degree that made him a physician. I mean, that was, it doesn't mean he wasn't a really effective doctor, but yeah, um, it was a bit of medical snobbery, I think. <laughs> but, um, but I really like your your uh, word apologet- unapologetic for Catherine. I think that's absolutely true. She's, that's, I think that's why she has such a kind of modernity that's so yeah. appealing to us. You know, I know we can't really project back, but there is just something about her that comes off the pages and I think she has absolute conviction and certainty mm-hmm. in her beliefs and that's you know an incredibly important quality in a leader you know you 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 take some time you research and then you make your judgment yeah. and then you know you're consistent with it you don't get swayed around and right. um and she you know he really really talks about that when he meets her so he travels all these 1700 miles you know in a carriage with his son and they arrive and and he meets First of all, they, the Dimsdales meet uh, her advisor, this guy called Nikki Tapanin, and he says he basically puts the fear of God into them and says, "You know, you're about to treat the two most important personages yeah. in the world, and they're, you know, like no pressure." And um, <laughs> at the which point, they're kind of quite alarmed. And then Thomas meets Catherine, and he's immediately absolutely won over by her. It's really remarkable his account. And he, luckily, there's so many. You know, he wrote about this. He wrote it in a private letter, which, again, his family still has to his friend Henry in London. And he also wrote about it in a, in another later treatise where he'd promised her and she wanted him to write it down. It's that same thing. They both wanted to make this stuff public so that they mm-hmm. could spread the word. It's really fascinating. Um, and yeah, so he, but they immediately hit it off and and he's really impressed by her he says that you know he's that she's the most impressive of any of her sex that he's ever met you know yeah. so, and she's but also the way to his heart is for someone to know about inoculation and to talk about it and she does yeah. know about it and, you know so she really but I think she was incredibly you know charismatic so many people talk about that so many observers discussing Catherine um mention that but he gives that very much first-hand account she sort of puts him at her at his ease and she kind of welcomes him into really quite her intimate sort of circle within the winter palace and he's eating dinner with her and with her son but one of the things you know that comes across very clearly is that she has kind of if you like she's kind of read the science you know she's looked at the data to go back to your you know him and his excel spreadsheet Mm, (laughs) And, and she's like she's basically done the key thing and this is actually something that comes from smallpox that kind of that direct comparison of risk um and they because we obviously use that medicine all the time now and of course it came up in covid you know what's your risk of being hurt by vaccination very tiny Mm. versus you know covid Mm. much less tiny right that process of analyzing comparative risk started really with smallpox analysis and the the comparison of mortality rates of natural smallpox versus inoculated smallpox and she's looked at those you know tables if you like of comparison and 
I keep saying, you know, one in five or more, more in Russia were dying than that. And yeah. then in, uh, you know, and inoculation, Thomas Tinsdale had inoculated 6,000 people and he'd had one child die. That's huge. You know, this yeah. is where people really underestimate how good they were at inoculation, done well, it was super, super safe. Of course, it was still, she was still taking a risk, but mm-hmm. it was a sensible risk. And she just says to him, well, you know, I I don't have any doubt. I'm absolutely fine. And he he wants to do trials in Russia. He asks if he can find women of her age yeah. and size. <laughs> Careful, Thomas. Um, and and she's, she says, like, no, no, you don't need to. I'm completely convinced of the safety right. of this. And eventually he does do some trials on some young cadets and young soldiers. And, you know, which nowadays we wouldn't think of as ethical. But to him it is because the whole process to him is very reliable. And, you know, so he, in his eyes, he's not taking risk. But, you know, they don't go particularly well. And she says to him, why are you so unhappy? You know, and he says, well, like, you know, these trials are not really quite working out as planned. And she says, look, I, just go ahead. It's fine. I trust you. She says, my life is my own. I love yeah. that. And, and I have complete trust in you. You know, she had absolute certainty about her um, you know her kind of policy decision here of what she wanted to do and about what she wanted to do with her body it's quite amazing I think just complete conviction uh, and then she summons him and you know in secret and by the way all this is in secret it's it's yeah. official that he's inoculating her son but it's definitely not official that he's doing you know inoculating her too because you know that would be there would be huge political questions raised by the fact that she's taking this risk and this potential for kind of a power right. vacuum. And, you know, she's still, she's a usurper, you know, she's yeah. much more stable on the throne than she had been when she took over, but she's not safe. And Russian, the Russian court is absolutely not really a sort of safe, stable place. So she took a risk in that sense as well, a big political risk of, you know, potentially weakening herself. She didn't know how she was going to come out, yeah. of it, but she just had this certainty. It's very, very powerful. And then, the certainty of the way she presents herself afterwards as well both within Russia and uh and outside of it too right like how I thought it was so funny and uh, crazy how she somehow she she won over uh I don't know what the correct term orthodox religion but she won over mm-hmm. that group that yeah, community yeah like found yeah, the, a way the, the, to the spin patriarch. it to, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to make it like like yeah this is modern science but i thought that was so amazing like to win over that like huge significant group of people yeah because the church you know there's always a risk as in france that the church would not approve of this and and the early objections in britain as well against this technology is wait a minute it's god's job to decide who gets disease it's god's job to decide who dies and this you know the big challenge of this technology is that this is you know people man humans taking control of their health you know of kind of getting in there and although they didn't really conceptualize it as a kind of preventative medicine they really saw it as a means of having smallpox but in a controlled way Mm -hmm. but but by later in the century they're starting to realize you know this is there's people talking kind of getting this idea that you're controlling your fate really so this is you know there's something philosophically very different about this as a step this is not curing something that's just kind of hit you this is getting getting there in front of disease and making sure it doesn't happen that's a really big you know conceptual change isn't it yeah so you're you're so right again and again no one else has raised that but you're really (laughs) right about it's good to say at the orthodox church that she she has uh one of the patriarchs i think or not a patriarch um one of the um metropolitan bishops i think in uh, st petersburg inoculated so she's kind of binding in the church Mm. into this you know and so that she can then and and thomas recognizes exactly what she's doing he writes home about it 
so she can kind of point to that as yeah hey look the church is on board as well right you know? right um and you that's because she fundamentally she understands the importance of public persuasion you yeah. know of poli it's politics isn't it yeah you you know that she's her own example she's physically used her own body she's used her you know her parenthood her motherhood she's had a son you know look at that for a trust so she's done absolutely everything she possibly can to kind of show that people who theoretically have influence herself right. the church uh, have committed to this and then I mean her other thing though is just to associate inoculation with kind of a party <laughs> she, <laughs> you know when she she comes back from the palace that uh, she's where she's recuperated it's called Sarsko Salon just outside St Petersburg and she comes back and there's like gunfire and fireworks and the houses are illuminated and there's cannons firing everywhere then she has this big orthodox mass so that's all the same you know again binding in the church she uh, there's a sort of speech where she talks about being um essentially allies herself with Christ you know talking about uh, she's like the lamb um, that looking after her people as Christ looked after the lambs you know she's she's got all these images of herself as as the little mother of the Russians as well mm -hmm. you know it's all about this care and herself as this kind of ultimate carer and then having got through the religious side she does her ballet and her art stuff and, all <laughs> that. and, and then she announces a, an annual public holiday can you imagine that imagine that in the states <laughs> or, in, or in the UK we're gonna have a vaccination holiday right. every year on November the 22nd <laughs> and, you know and so she associates it with parties and that's really fascinating you know it's a really interesting idea that's so it's it's going to be this great celebration where every year people will get a day off and they'll all think about how great she is what yeah. a great example what a cool leader and also think about inoculation so it's really a credible piece of statecraft I think and that really interested me I used to be a political journalist and just watching her understanding of yeah of influence and leadership I thought was really remarkable yeah going off of that like because your your professional background um I want to pivot a little bit because I'm so this is like your first published book right and how did like this experience of publishing this book or even just the whole process of like researching and, and, you know, finding the publisher, getting the agents, get editing, going through all that jazz. Um, how did that compare to like your experiences as, you know, your, the, your professional career, like of the journalism, like, and maybe biggest lessons learned too during this process? Yeah. A really good question i i the really fundamental thing is you know just how do you hold your nerve to write 100 thousand plus words versus, yeah <laughs> you know bashing out 500 words so, um it's a completely different rhythm and a completely different kind of mindset and it's a big pivot to do it i think i think the crossover or the what I think a journalist can bring to a book like this despite not being an academic although you know obviously i've studied some um archaeology and history in that sense is part of my degree but I'm not a historian <laughs> um was but the, what you bring is the hopefully a storytelling ability you know an ability to kind of see that this is a story that this is an untold story that should yeah. be told to see the themes in it that resonate now I mean obviously kind of more than we expected now but nevertheless even before COVID you know we know we're interesting and complicated period with kind of public belief in science right mm -hmm. so I was attracted by that that's really a kind of you know journalist head looking at that and yeah and then hopefully some pace in the story and recognizing there's kind of some thrilling elements in this um I worked at uh, Cambridge University as well doing communications and 
I'm really interested in how you can make that jump from academic text and research, which are absolutely, you know, essential, but how can you, not everybody's going to read those, you know, making sure those stories, especially science narratives, kind of make it out to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I hope there's a place for a journalist uh, kind of telling these stories. I mean, you know, I think that my background of, you know, having to research quickly and hopefully accurately mm-hmm. that came into play because, you know, as I said, with COVID, you, you, I had to stop all my plans and look for as much information as I could wherever I could find it so a lot of different digitized archives finding those in Russian um, Mm -hmm. finding what was available in the UK there's actually a remarkable amount you can read the most incredible kind of 18th century treatises and really get quite quickly into how people are are thinking there is all this stuff online it's incredible people want to look it up and but yeah so that that journalistic aspect was quite helpful Um, what have I learned (laughs) um I (laughs) you learn an awful lot I have learned that I still need to I sent my editor every chapter as I did it like I can't I need a deadline I need a gun to my head I like it it's just how I work and the idea and I also wrote it quite fast actually I had I I I thought I was going to write it in about 10 months and that turned out to be absolutely insane. And that was inexperienced <laughs> in, in talking. But to be fair, that also that was the pandemic. Uh, but I did write it in about just under 18 months. That's quite, quite fast for, mm, for a book. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt like a relevant time to get this book published. Right. So hopefully it was it was worth making it yeah because well, yeah no well because I'm just looking at even in the back you know so many pages are taken up just from you citing your resources and it's like holy crap like yeah. I would have been <laughs> so <laughs> I would have been so impressed if you finished this in less than a year because it was it was <laughs> yeah, a lot but I imagine that was like almost part of the fun of it you know yeah like yeah, to just I learn think. and and fi- and find all these like just his you know historical events and then trying to piece yeah. it together and organize yeah. it in a way yeah yeah that's exactly right it is it's jigsaw and you go off though like you go down these insane rabbit holes and you get completely yeah. obsessed with <laughs> someone in Ireland that was like, well like I found out there was some 12 year old girl that inoculated herself in about 1720 I was like oh my god that's so fascinating and she did it loads of times and, and then I mean just yeah you find crazy things and you you go off and you have to kind of reel yourself back in because yeah, like, right. not going to get in the book just stop um and yeah and you can spend days just going yeah but what exactly was her crown like when she was you know when she was uh, actually anointed and then yeah it's you have to you yeah. have to control it but that's also absolutely one of the pleasures you know just all these and that's also the thing that gives you a sense of connection I think these sort of especially first person writing I had a really great time reading first person accounts of what it was like to live in Russia for British people or Europeans yeah. at that time because there's a remarkable English community there like I mean amazing community because Catherine was very interested in England she had what she called Anglomania she oh. adored it and so there were all these Brits turning up kind of you know merchants and and trading and take, taking um, goods out of Russia obviously like flax and rhubarb and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but then plenty of things coming in like luxury goods and then people would turn up in St Petersburg so it was quite an English community there who were like running theatres or burlesque performances or kind of claiming they could teach English to people and it was, it was quite kind of wild fascinating atmosphere yeah. actually I got quite beguiled by that yeah it was it was great anyway yeah lots of rabbit holes yeah I know <laughs> come out of them honestly yeah yeah. I, yeah I can only imagine um so just a couple more questions here as we wrap up this I'm curious to see your answers to this 
what were your favorite parts to write? And then maybe like, what was the most difficult part to write? Like what comes to mind when you think like, what you know, what did you have the most fun writing about? But then like what also then the other side of that, like what was really either the most challenging or the most difficult to flesh out either from like, you know, your writing style standpoint or just, you know, finding a way to put it down on paper and finding where to fit it in. I think the hardest thing is trying to kind of summarize almost like the history of the disease and mm. the and the process of you know how it had been treated and things there's just so much to say but you don't want you just want to give people enough of that without kind of all of that history there's just too much and yeah. so trying to kind of consolidate and give enough it is it is a story of a scientific you know of, a, of science and of a technology but it's also a story of people of course and I think that, yeah, trying to to just compress that enough for it to be understood. The other thing that was quite challenging is, you know, Catherine is, she is this extraordinary character. And even before she gets anywhere near the throne, her story is amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, even if you remember this incredible ways that her health was treated when she was growing up and then when, you know, she was in Russia, but before she actually took the throne, I found things like that fascinating, but it's how much do you tell of that incredible woman's story? You can't do it all so it's trying to provide enough that was so it's that process of real compact sort of selection yeah. was was quite difficult because you know I think you really ask a lot of a reader if you give them however many a couple of hundred pages you know that's asking for however many hours of someone's time and that's that's a great honor that they pay you if they buy that book and try and read it and mm. I I am never would never ever take that for granted you know that's why I try to make it have some pace even though it's a sort of yeah serious subject but you you should really honor the reader and never mm. expect um it's it's important and what did I most like writing it was great fun writing the actual the scenes in St Petersburg you know where the doctor's there and there's this tension about you know will these trials go right and and just her saying look get on with it and then her recovery <laughs> you know all that all that period when you I really had a strong sense of the place and of you know her walking around the gardens and I'd been there I'd managed to get a trip to the South Korea Solo this palace oh, where awesome. she recovers so I was really lucky I could kind of visualize that um yeah I did really enjoy that element of it because there's just so much color and detail there's so many different sources for this story um from the ambassador's letters to thomas's own letters to catherine's letters to voltaire and people mm -hmm. you know so i i love it when you can hear voices i think and bring that to life i'm a i'm a journalist the reason i went into journalism is not to tell people what to think it was to reflect and and kind of um give voice to other people's voices i love like speech and quotes Mm -hmm. uh, I know I know I'm banging on today but yeah I honestly do love other people's voice. <laughs> and that and that that was where I, I loved the fact there was so many people with who were describing what I was now describing and I could use their voices to do that yeah no it's absolutely I love I and I love that too where you're you know you were just so conscious about putting all those voices together and you know because it's not like a typical book where there's I mean you could look at these voices though know, they are the characters of your story and kind of mm -hmm you know, you got to find ways to like appropriately place them in and, and where, what part do they play in this? And, you know, you're, you're tying in characters from, from multiple regions, multiple countries. And so, I mean, but yeah, I love how you said, you know, you, you want to appreciate the reader's time because you want to, there's so much information and so much of a challenge. I imagine that you have to like really 
maximize the efficiency of, yeah. of telling that story of, of, you know, having the meat and potatoes, maybe sprinkling in some vegetables in there, but like, mostly yeah. you have to like, keep your eye on the prize and, and like how you say, not go, not get too sucked in down to like the rabbit hole. And from what you know, you're describing, and I, I love learning about Catherine the Great and Thomas Denzel and all these other, uh, you know, voices and characters that played a part too in this incredible feat <laughs> that yeah. was, you know, trying to, because smallpox was around for like, what, like 400 something years, right? Um, oh, millennia. Yeah. I mean, and after this, after this event had happened, this is all in 1768, this is when yeah. Thomas made his journey and it was eradicated in, you know, 1979. I think the WHO actually formally announced eradication in 1980. That's crazy. So that's, and yet by the end of the 18th century, and this was another amazing thing, really, doctors had, they, and including Thomas Dinsdale, they foresaw the possibility of eradication. They'd worked out that if you could inoculate enough people, isolate enough people, you could get rid of this disease. But yeah. it took another, yeah, 200 years for it to happen. Yeah. And it's still the only, and the only disease we've ever managed to eradicate from the planet. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I didn't know that. See, that's why I just, I don't know. Like I said, I, I love uh, reading books that make me feel like I'm smarter when I'm done. Cause I had no idea of a lot of um, things, things went down and, and it's, it's fascinating the impact that it had on the world going yeah. years, years, years going forward. Super fascinating. Mm -hmm. Lucy Ward, thank you so much um, for chatting with us today. This was super cool. You were so mm -hmm. educated and knowledgeable and <laughs> you know, you, you made it, you made it really cool and interesting and fun to like learn about um, these two important people and, you know, telling the story that needs to be told that m a lot of people probably don't know about, at least not maybe outside the, uh, you know, scientific communities, <laughs> but sure. Yeah, no, but thank you so much. So we got The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus, out June 7th. Oh, you've got a, a website and you're on Twitter, correct? Are you, do you want to uh, right. push out any other where people can uh, find you and follow you? I think mate, that's the best way, really. Uh, yeah, it's lucyward.uk. It's my website, which is quite new, but it's kind of, yeah, I think it's got the information you need. Yeah. And I'm on Twitter. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> um, so do you have any plans for like future projects? Should we keep an eye out for you? Yeah, I do, actually. In fact, there's a story in this book that I think needs more explanation and exploration and will really benefit from a wider telling. And I'm amazed, again, that that has not had the, you know, the kind of attention it deserves. So I'll leave you to guess which okay. one it is within <laughs> that. But yeah, I'm going to have a go at pursuing that. Yeah, I, leave, awesome. I, I love a science narrative, too. So that's another route that I'm hoping to go down in the future. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait. I'll keep, yeah, I'll for sure. Keep an eye out for your name and any uh, announcements that come, <laughs> that come out from what you're working on, but yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep tabs on whatever you got going on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm really grateful to you for interviewing yeah, me. Thank yep. you. Okay. And there you have it. Cantina conversation with Lucy Ward. Her book, The Empress and the English Doctor, is out June 7th. You know, as always, rate, review, subscribe. Check out my book reviews at thedurncantina.com. You can find links where to follow on social media and purchase the book in the show notes. So I you know, hope you enjoy and we'll talk to you again soon.